Earlier this month, New Geneva Academy hosted our annual Shepherds Conference. The theme of this year's conference was The Good Soldier. We camped out in 2 Timothy 2, 1-7 for the five conference sermons. Unfortunately, we failed in getting proper recordings of the sermons, the best laid plans, as they say. So the audio you hear, pulled from the videos we recorded, is not great. We didn't want you to be without the content, so decided to publish what we had. The fourth session, entitled Soldier's Fight, was preached by Elder Brian Bailey. Mr. Bailey serves as an elder at Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana, and works as a lawyer. Before his work in private practice, Brian was a member of Indiana Governor Mike Pence's cabinet. He was the state budget director of Indiana, making him responsible for stewarding the state's tax revenues and developing and managing a $30 billion annual state budget. Again, we hope you are helped by this sermon from The Good Soldier. The topic that I've been asked to preach, teach on, is a soldier fights. And I've been asked to answer two questions. Why do men who have vocational callings outside the church engage in conflict, but when it comes to inside the church, they don't. We don't. So that's question number one. Question number two is, what are the consequences if men who are called by God to be officers of the church fail to engage in conflict? And so a soldier fights, our verse is from 2 Timothy 4, excuse me, 2 Timothy 2, verses 4 through 7. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. A hard-working farmer ought to be the one, ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would make us good and faithful soldiers who will fight for your glory and for the peace and purity of your church. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. So the question is, why don't we engage in conflict? And I think we need to establish just briefly that we do engage in conflict outside the church. Some of us have a vocation where we are entangled in the affairs of everyday life. I'm paid to be a lawyer, so I am necessarily entangled in the affairs of people's everyday lives, trying to disentangle them from those affairs. So let us briefly establish that we do engage in conflict in other places. We see that with pastors. They are choosing to engage in conflict on a daily basis, or choosing not to engage in conflict. And for those of us whose occupational calling is outside the church, we engage in conflict daily. And it's not just for litigators who are representing parties in lawsuits. And in some ways, I'm a litigator, and it's easier for me, because I, there's so many rules about it. Trial rules, evidence rules, appellate rules, ethics rules, and I have the privilege of arguing to a judge who's on a platform. I know who I need to convince. And that judge is dressed in a black robe. That's really weird, but that's, that helps you focus your attention on who the decision maker is. And as an added benefit, that judge has a bailiff who's armed to the side. Really easy to, to see. There's some conflict that's going to go on here, and we're going to get a decision. Okay. But what about construction contractors? They engage in conflict with their suppliers, with their customers, with their employees. 
with other trades that they're competing with to try to get a job done. The building inspector, zoning authorities, the architect, it goes on. Oh, but, the, but that's blue collar. Blue collar guys have, have love. Those guys, those white collar guys at the, the cushy office site or working at home because of COVID, they got it easy. No, they don't. They have conflict with their bosses, with their coworkers, with their clients, their customers. And then if you're a government, you have those conflicts, and then you have conflicts with legislators, different administrations and departments under the same authority, uh, stakeholders, taxpayers, reporters, lobbyists, conflict abouts. Then, if you're in the military or law enforcement, physical conflict that is sometimes deadly is actually part of the, the job description for the purpose of pursuing and establishing and maintaining peace. So, if so many of us are engaged in conflict on a daily basis outside the four walls of our church, why do we shy away from it in the church? There are many reasons we're going to consider three. First, conflict means work. And you're probably already thinking that we've heard about work already during this conference. It's important, so we're going to have to hear more about it. And my focus is going to be on the difficult parts of work that is relational. As you do the job as a judge, if you're an officer in the church, you are an adjudicator of conflict as you seek to bring peace to the church. Okay, it's hard work, we can't bring it, and we can't let the ragtag nature of a mostly volunteer organization prevail and corrupt our work to adjudicate conflict. And one of the most important aspects of our work in conflict is fact-finding, which is decidedly unsexy. My first job in private practice was in a 100-year-old law firm that had the sense enough to take us novice attorneys and say, uh, you're going to do on-the-job training and you're going to do training at night. So it was one evening a week, or excuse me, one evening a month. And so we, there was a senior litigator who was leading this training on how to be a litigator. And he asked one night, I can't remember if it was him or if he had another senior litigator there asking. He said, do you know what wins cases? Well, that would be something I would want to know. <laughs> we were sitting up a little straighter. Yeah, but what wins cases? And I'm, I'm scanning for Daniel from. Where are you, brother? Okay. Okay, well, that's not why I was standing for. He said he was listening in case you're wondering. So Daniel is a newly minted attorney. He has passed the Indiana bar. Yeah. And he's one of the students at the pastor's college. Okay, so Daniel, what's the answer? What wins cases? <laughs> you're, still the Lord. you're still getting your union card, it's okay. But really, what, what wins cases? Uh, go ahead. The truth. The truth. Facts. Which are true. The truth. It's facts. Not the facts machine. F-A-C-T-A's facts. <laughs> facts win cases. And in our work as adjudicators of conflict, we have to find the facts. 
We have to be like Job. What what does scripture say about Job in relation to facts and cases? He investigated the cases he didn't know. And so we can't just say, oh, I don't know anything about that. It's our job to know. And I've seen this borne out personally that facts win cases. And we'll talk about what does money mean. We'll talk about what money means. But facts win cases, and it's been borne out in my work as an attorney, in the courts, in public office, serving on boards, and work in the church, and my family. Many years ago, Pastor Bailey, another lawyer from a mega law firm in New York, and I worked on an appeal within the the Metro New York Presbytery. We were helping a man in that Presbytery appeal something that the Presbytery had done wrong, had done him wrong, and had done wrong. And men in this church read the appeal. And they asked me, well, what, what parts did you work on? And I, I asserted to their evident disappointment, I worked on the facts. <laughs> there was a, a facts part, and there was an argument part about the violations of the Book of Church Order. Argument is sexy. Facts are not sexy. What facts occur? The facts, the things that happened, the things that didn't happen, the things that were done, the things that were undone, and the implicit but obvious motivations of the actors in the controversy. Facts. So where the facts are so important, Where do you find them? They live in two main habitats. One is within documents, and the other is within humans. And if you, if if it's your job to look through documents to find facts, you, sir, as my daughter Chloe would say, are a lucky duck. Documents. Oh, I I love documents. I I really do. I love looking at meeting minutes and meeting agendas and contracts and emails and trying to put some kind of sense of what what happened. How's this how's this fact relevant to this fact? What's really going on? What is the big picture? If you, on the other hand, have to find your facts in men, I pity you. It is hard. It is hard. Gathering facts means work. It means in-person meetings. After you have already done your work for the day, That means phone calls. After you have reached and already exceeded your word limit for the day, you got to pick up the phone and you got to talk to someone. And it's you already know it's not going to be pleasant. And then, then what? Then what happens after you have that conversation? Boom, 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 boom. Oh, follow up question, follow up question. What about this? What about that? Then it's more you're picking up the phone again. You're sending an email. You're finding the facts. Now, you are a journalist. Who, what, when, where, why, how? What's the chronology? Where was he standing when he put his hand on your shoulder? Were you sitting? Were you standing? You're a judge weighing the reliability and credibility of the person you're talking to. 
was that response evasive? <laughs> or worse, was it hostile? Was it based on an unwarranted level of certainty? How reliable is the memory? Is there any defensiveness? How does it mesh with what another witness said? How does it mesh with what you know of that man's character, strengths, and weaknesses? Which facts are critical? Which ones are secondary? Which ones are irrelevant? And then you're thinking, do we really need to go through this torture by tedium? Isn't that what lawyers do? Yes, and it's what shepherds do. That's what we, our privilege as shepherds is to investigate the case that we don't know as we seek to bring peace and reconciliation to a dispute, to a conflict. We read in Exodus 18, how many, what was, what was the ratio of elders to men that, that Moses appointed? One to two. Okay, ten to one, one to ten. Okay, all you math guys, you got it right. One to ten, ten to one, doesn't matter. Ten percent. Okay? One in ten. This shows us how much work there is to be done. But then we have other excuses. Well, some people are just more articulate than I am. And they talk circles around me. I'm not emotionally intelligent. <laughs> I'm saying things about myself. <laughs> I'm not emotionally intelligent. I have trouble picking up on nuance and subtext. Uh, have you been married lately? <laughs> I think it's going to be last time. <laughs> <laughs> Just that there are too many wives in the room. <laughs> of course, some of you and I will be the interlocutory inferior in many conversations. And you're saying, well, Brian, you can use interlocutory, so you can really talk. No, I just looked that one up, okay? And there was some alliteration. But it doesn't matter that we're inferiors and the people that we're loving as we seek to shepherd them. That's how God designed it. It's like we just made the JV football team, and we, our assignment is to tackle the verbal equivalent of Barry Sanders, hmm. the former uh, running back for the Detroit Lions. And I see some people shaking their heads, so you're old enough to remember Barry Sanders, not Bernie Sanders. <laughs> 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 the juke, the stutter step, the spin, the finesse, the speed, the leap, the stiffle. Okay, we've seen this, we've experienced this in with someone else, with, in conversation as we're investigating, we're asking questions, we're talking, we're trying to draw them out. Okay, this is what, this is why we shy away from them in the church, because the church and the home are the natural places where our weakness is exposed to a humiliating degree. A painful degree. And it's the two places that matter most that we don't want to give ourselves to, dealing with the souls in conflict, fighting. The two places where the stakes are the highest and the subject matter, the soul is beyond any natural man's perceptions and abilities. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? You know what? It doesn't matter. You have a job to do. And we must do that job in faith to the best of our ability, which ability, humanly speaking, 
is not often considerable. Okay, but it's tricky to judge the vibe and the tone and draw inferences from a place of subjectivity, right? We're not just there producing a transcript of what was said during the conversation. We're judging vibes, we're judging tone. And this is a place that I particularly do not like. I like objectivity. And sometimes I think that the concept of subjectivity is actually a ruse. It's a plot to overthrow objectivity. <laughs> and that subjectivity is really just a combination of micro-objectivities. <laughs> that if I were just paying close enough attention, I could just... <clears throat> I could make an objective judgment and support it with objective facts. Subjectivity, then, I'm sorry to say, is real. Hmm. Intuition, I'm sorry to say, is real. It's a real thing. Recently, to respond to an appeal, uh, to the Court of Appeals. I was reading a transcript of a preliminary injunction hearing. This hearing took place over three different days. Eight hours of testimony. And there were a couple of moments where my two clients were in anguish because of the oppression of the opposing party. I don't know how else to describe it. And that anguish finds some expression on the transcript but the subjective feeling that the tears are not going to travel on that paper electronically, the distance between Bloomington and Indianapolis, where the Court of Appeals is, and who is now going to take up the case. Often our work is in the place of subjectivity and sensitivity. What was said, what was left unsaid. I was at a, a touching meeting with another elder and a third man once. And the purpose of our meeting was to convey a heavy decision of the Board of Dollars to that man. <coughs> and before I go any further, this is a man that we love. We've appreciated, we've been blessed, God's blessed us through this man for years. And at different points in this meeting, the man would say something that could have two meanings. And not just two meanings, two equal and opposite meanings. <laughs> One meaning that was copacetic, that, uh, okay, that's okay, yeah, we, we can go with that. And another meaning that was actually opposed to what we were doing and what we were saying. Are, are you, have you had this happen? <laughs> And what was happening is that as he was, he would respond, he would say things that could lead us to think, how oh, can be satisfied with that? But also saying things that would allow him to rest secure in his private judgment that we were wrong. And that our judgment was wrong. And that our decision was wrong. Let me give you an example. And I'm going to try to use my best Missouri broadcast accent so I don't give away anything. And those, I'll just leave it at that. Let, let the reader understand. So after about an hour in this meeting, the, the man said, this church has great potential. He didn't say it like that. That was my Missouri broadcasting accent. This church has great potential. don't say. <laughs> Show me tempers. <laughs> this church has great, no, I didn't say that. I was like, thinking that. This church has great potential. 
The other elder and I have taken that as a sign of hopeful solidarity as we were together advancing toward the goal of realizing that great potential. But instead, like the idiots we were, we asked, what did you mean by that? <laughs> And the other elder said, yeah, there's a weird vibe to that. My point is not to show we were right and he was wrong. We were not being censorious judgment fuckers about everything he was saying. My point is that our work will involve pain to ourselves and to others as we reveal to them things they don't know about themselves and don't want to know about themselves. And this is difficult. This is hard. And no man is equal to it. We must roll up our sleeves in faith and fear and trembling as our stomachs churn and get after it. Okay, that's reason number one why we do not engage in conflict. Here's reason number two. A second reason we don't engage in conflict in the church is that we think we should begin and end with the physician's principle of first do no harm. A while back I listened to a Navy SEAL on a podcast describe combat in Ramadi in Iraq during the Iraq War. You may have heard of him, his name is Jocko Willink. He had served in Ramadi in 2003 and 2004. Then he takes an assignment as an admiral's aide, and he's stateside for a couple of years. Then he gets a promotion to be a commander, and then he's sent back to Ramadi. So he's gone two years, he's back in Ramadi, he's a new commander, and he walks into whatever their headquarters was, and he looks at the scoreboard. And here's what he sees. It didn't look to him like anything had changed <laughs> in the two years he was gone, which to him meant we're losing. And by the way, I'm just using this as an illustration. It's not a comment on American foreign policy in the Middle East for the past 30 years. It's just an illustration. <laughs> so he's back in Ramadi. He's looking at the scoreboard. Nothing's changed. And he decides he has to do something. So he does what any good commander would do. He turns to Google. <laughs> he gets on the internet and he goes. And by Googling, he finds a counterinsurgency manual, a draft counterinsurgency manual. There's things that you can find on Google. You can find that here. Produced in part by David Petraeus, he read it and decided he would use the strategies and tactics from that manual to get Ramadi off dead center. Strategically, he read and agreed with the assessment that the first objective was the security of the populace. We talk about Calvin saying things that are duh. Well, Duh. <laughs> Your first objective is the security of the populace. It doesn't matter if you go to a water plant, it doesn't matter whether you go to school. If people are afraid that those places are going to blow up, you're not going to have people trusting you and your leadership and your, your attempts at security. Your show of force. So he, had, he has the strategy in place, oh, better protect the people. And then he confronts a tactical reality. The American unit's job, his job, was to go out and do more patrols. Find bad guys, engage with them, kill them. And that means work. And it had to happen this way. He had, they had to be proactive and aggressive because these insurgents would otherwise just buy their time. They'd just wait and strike at strategic moments to destabilize the people and to lower their trust in the American force. 
So guess what happens when you go out and you engage and you kill bad guys? You face, in addition to your own increased operations, that means more work for you, you face increased enemy activity. And friendly casualties will go up. That's what the draft counterinsurgency manual predicted. So, what do we take from that? Oh, that's troubling. Seems counterintuitive. Counterinsurgency seems counterintuitive. <laughs> Your counterinsurgent plan is stirring up trouble. You are a trouble of Iraq. When you are on counterinsurgency, you look like you're starting to have trouble. So what's the application to us? One of the applications is that we commit one of the most basic errors of logic, or we allow others to fall into this error. And I don't think Josh Conway is here, so you know this is coming out of Latin. So the logical error is post hoc ergo proctor hoc. What does that mean? After the fact, after this, therefore, because of this. After this, therefore, because of this. If thing A comes before B, thing B in time, thing A costs thing B. In other words, the soldier on team counterinsurgency is the one causing the insurgency. That's the illogic. The good guy is causing the bad guy to fight. We see this phenomenon in the context of the watchman in Ezekiel 33. The man who has the watch on the wall. He sees the danger, he blows the horn, and so then what do the sheep say? Oh, thank you for blowing that horn. Now I know that my family and I are in danger and that we need to take action to protect ourselves. No, we sheep tend to go post hoc ergo proctor hoc on this whole thing, on this horn thing. We associate the cause of the danger with the horn. Blowing. Think about it. Put yourself in their place. We're snug in our beds. The Colts game is dancing in our heads. And then what happens? It's 2 o'clock in the morning and the tornado siren is going off. Anyone had that experience? <laughs> okay. It's akin to the smoke alarm suddenly going off on the coldest night of the year. Not because there's smoke, not because there's fire, but because the battery's dying. <laughs> and it's an infuriating annoyance. It's startling. It's disturbing. Only when it comes to the soul and spiritual matters, we sheep think that the tornado siren at 2 o'clock in the morning is totally unnecessary. If he would just put a sock in it, we can all go back to sleep. Worse than that, with gross illogic, we blame the tornado siren for summoning the tornado. If the siren went off, the tornado would have happened. It's like the punchline of the joke that the trailer park causes the tornado. Only that's what we, she, think. And we ourselves, as shepherds, are tempted to buckle. We come to think and say to ourselves that everyone else can see the same things that we see from the same distance. Therefore, there is no need to warn them. We see a funnel cloud in the west. They must see a funnel cloud in the west. Why make the situation more unpleasant by blowing the siren? Or we try to turn the tornado siren into a musical instrument so that it gets people's attention 
in a more polite, genteel, and modern way. <laughs> so what's the application to us? We need to remember this. When all hell breaks loose, because we're dealing with an insurgency that we did not cause, but that we are trying to, in faith, faithfully defend against and prevail. Christ has won the key battle, and we, as his foot soldier and his victorious army, are to fight. We think the church militant is about fighting Hollywood and DC, but if judgment begins in the house of the Lord, then we must fight against the sins that so easily entangle us and our sheep. And again, if that wasn't challenging enough, every member of Team Counter Insurgency, and that means you, and I, and our wives, bring into the walled city our own sin. But we must not because of that fact and how difficult it is. Be complacent and live and let die. Satisfied with our income and investments and relationships and the calm before the storm, we must fight for Christ's precious lives. Which will you do? There's a third reason we avoid conflict. It's our fear of friendly fire. And I don't mean the friendly fire of the person causing the dispute. I mean the friendly fire of your fellow elders, pastors. Let's say you're addressing a conflict between two men in your congregation. One man is the employer of the other man, let's say. You as an elder are assigned to mediate that conflict and to work to bring peace. As you do that work, you will fail. You'll be too soft. You'll be too hard. You won't say the right thing. That Gnostic key that will unlock that man's ability to see his sin repent of it. You won't pray right. You won't read the perfectly apt scripture. You won't dig deeply enough into the problem. You'll dig too deeply into the problem. <laughs> You won't give the right counsel. There was a, a phrase when uh, Alan Greenspan was Fed Chair. It was the, the Goldilocks economy. You remember, remember that? The Goldilocks economy. Tim Newman is shaking his head. Yep. Okay. <laughs> so the Goldilocks economy is a perpetual motion machine for prosperity that is regulated by the Federal Reserve. Okay. Not too hot, not too cold, inflation not too high, employment not too high, unemployment, blah, 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 blah. There's no Goldilocks economy, and there's no Goldilocks elder. There's no Goldilocks pastor. There is no platonic ideal of the pastor. There's no platonic ideal of the elder. As you engage in your work, as we engage in our work, as I engage in my work, I will fail. And as you fail, you will open yourself up to what? Criticism. <laughs> Criticism. Criticism from the disputants, for sure. Oh, yeah but also from your fellow elders and pastors. We feel especially vulnerable when there's the possibility of schism in the church over the disputants, and that we ourselves may aggravate the dispute and thus aggravate the possibility for schism by trying to address it. And we'd rather sin by omission than commission. We get gunshot. We're gun-shy in dealing with the disputant. We're gun-shy in dealing with our fellow elder. That we know maybe partial to one of 
to someone that's in the conflict history from more than one. We just were gun shy. So friendly fire means something like the situation the infantryman on the front line deals with. Calling in the artillery. That's a mile or two away from the action. In that situation, the artillery is meant to hit the enemy, <laughs> not you. But in this situation, actually the artillery is meant to hit you, the other dealing with the thing on the front lines. With soldiering in the church, the artillery will sometimes hit you, and it's meant to, and that's good. Pastor Tim has said time and again that whenever we as elders deal with the discipline of sin, we will contribute our own sins and failures to the stinking pile that is already there as elders. It's inescapable. It's inevitable. And so one of the things that he's taught, that's been taught in the men's the men's group that used to meet on Saturday mornings. It was the, the illustration of the Blue Angels. Have you heard this? The Blue Angels, they fly in these dangerous formations. They land after the show. The commander goes around and points out to them everything they did wrong. And they say, I'm just glad to be here, sir. That needs to be our attitude. As ours. I am just glad to be here. If it's not your attitude, please make it your attitude. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about you. Or you, or you, or you. It's not about us. It's about God and His sheep, His character, His prerogatives. It's, if it's about protecting yourself and being oh so precious with yourself, you will be combat effective. Not only will you be combat effective, you will jeopardize the effectiveness of the unit. If you will jeopardize the effectiveness of the unit, you will jeopardize the souls of those that you've been entrusted with. That you've been called to protect and to serve as agents of peace and reconciliation. So thankfully for us, there is a secret to avoiding friendly fire. And that secret to avoiding friendly fire is not to be perfect. It's to be dead. Alright? If you're dead already, they can't kill you. <laughs> now what do I mean by that? Let's start with what I don't mean. I'm not talking about being fatalistic. Let go, let go. <laughs> I'm not talking about emotionally deadening yourself. I'm not talking about hyper-spiritualizing the conflict so that it seems so cosmically grandiose you're overwhelmed and you're taken out of action. You can't deal with it. It's steady as she goes. Boringly normal sinners, us, Helping other boringly normal sinners deal with their conflict. Yes, at times there are horrible sins and the consequences that we must deal with as we seek to help victims heal. And we seek to help perpetrators repent. My focus here is on the ego of the shepherd. This is what I'm talking about. You need to die to your ego. Your pride, your deeply ingrained instinct for self-preservation, and your bottomless need for approval. Oh no, you tell it like it is. If you really think you tell it like it is, you are deluded. And you need to get real. How do you get real? Here's the first part of getting real. Realize that you do care about the approval of your fellow man. And then second, realize that it doesn't matter what happens to you. To your relationships, to your friendships, to your reputation. That's, that's God's 
capital, and he can spend it however he wants to spend it. Now there, don't you feel better already? Uh, <laughs> no, you don't, because that's a half-truth. We must die to ourselves and live to Christ. What we do, we do out of love for our Lord, our Master, our Commander, and His sheep. It's our duty to protect them, and often that means protecting them from the consequences of our bottomless need for approval. And we must also realize that we don't start with a finite amount of relational capital that's only going to diminish over time as we're slowly ground into the dust. I remember talking with a friend at the start of the Pitts administration who had a high position. We were both on the tax and fiscal policy side of things and we were talking about policy jobs, things to get done. And this man said, who used to go to this church, this man said, I only have a certain amount of capital now, we better use it. So what did he mean by that? He meant in the first hundred days, if, if you try to do something worth doing, you're going to make enemies. And they're going to come at you, and they're going to try to neutralize you, kill you. Or if they don't do that, you're going to die the death of a thousand cuts. Because you're saying no to this, and no to that, and no to the other thing. You're going to make people mad. He was foreordained to lose his mojo. <laughs> his juice as politicians like to say now that is the world's economy that is not God's economy yes God does call us to be poured out like drink offerings and I see that with faithful men in church history and men right now in this church They are battered and beaten like an old war horse. Spurgeon said near the end of his life during the downgrade controversy, when the Baptist unit he had led and shepherded eventually repudiated him, quote, I am quite willing to be eaten of dogs for the next 50 years, but the more distant future shall vindicate me. Spurgeon poured out like a drink offering. Now that is one side of the in God's economy, this being battered, this rebuking, encouraging, and exhorting of all patience, this adjudicating, this, this spending of relational capital, making people angry, by the operation of the Holy Spirit, produces prodigious fruit and replenishes the stores. This is from 2 Kings 4, verses 1 through 7. Now a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me what do you have in this house? And she said, Your maid servant has nothing in the house except a jar of water. Then he said, Go, borrow vessels at large for yourself from all your neighbors, even empty vessels. Do not get a few. And you shall go in and shut the door behind you and your sons and pour out into all these vessels, and you shall set aside what is full. So she went out from the vessels. She went out from him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They were bringing the vessels to her, and she poured. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not one vessel more. And the oil stopped. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debt and you and your sons can live on the rest. Okay. So what did the bankrupt, bankrupt widow have? She had some material capital. She had a jar of oil. She had two children. But she had enormous spiritual capital, which was a husband who feared the Lord and served the church. And she had humility and um, boldness that was just desperate. She acted in faith, trusting God's promises, and she had to borrow from her neighbors. She had to put herself 
at someone else's death. Again. And we don't we know how the account is, so we don't feel embarrassed for her, but she was embarrassed. She's going to the neighbors, asking for jars. Uh, honey, the widow who's about to be foreclosed on is asking for the Tupperware. Okay? Okay to give it to her? <laughs> she didn't laugh like Sarah, being told she had a child in her old age, and she didn't walk and ask questions like that. She had faith. Okay, Brian, what does this have to do with conflict in the church? We're going to take hits. And over time, we will be tempted to throw up our hands in frustration and despair. And this is what we wickedly say in our hearts, if not with our mouths. The hell of this. Think about what that means. We only grow older and more tired when we don't really believe God or we do our youth like demons. But scripture says in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is in me within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Who satisfies your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Now for Americans, we think the eagle thing means that 40 is the new 30. But as we slide, as we slip into our 50s and 60s and onto our 70s, we think, eh, not so much. If you're over 50, your youth apparently cannot be renewed like it is. <laughs> That's what we think. We think that this means the wisdom of accumulating experience and the many, many humblings that God has given us along will outweigh the step of Boston or the brittleness that we feel. And certainly brittleness is something we must pray God to heal us from and to protect us from. The sheep are going to hit us. Our fellow shepherds are going to hit us. And if we're honest with ourselves, this hitting is necessary no matter who's right. It is the place from which we grow as we see our weaknesses and failures and doggedly Year after year, try to correct them and grow from them. The church is not the bottom high school of basketball where there's no redeeming value to a loss. So I'm a Hoosier. I grew up learning that there's no such thing as a good loss. And I've had to fight hard to dislodge that lie from my heart. We have to fail at times in our conflicts if we're going to win. If, as the Apostle Paul says, God's power is perfected in our weakness, then is that perfected state something that's cosmic and doesn't really have anything to do with the here and now of the earth? Sometimes, yes, we won't see how God has used failure to his fruit and accomplish his objectives, his wins. We won't see it, but it happens. And then there are other times when he gives us the privilege of seeing, wow, despite my failure and weakness and the thing that I thought was a loss, God turned it into victory in a way we could never have anticipated. We see this in our, our homes and we see it in our church. And all winning, and this context means we want to win, right? All winning means is being useful to our families and to the church. And if we spend our time looking over our shoulders, over worrying about the, the whistling of the incoming, we're not going to be useful. Okay, one final thing. Now, I want to turn our attention to what is the condition of the church like if we don't engage in conflict. We know it's not going to be Disneyland if we don't engage in conflict. There will not be peace. If we haven't done the hard work of addressing the core of conflicts, if we do our work superficially, 
patch things here, plug things there, we're going to devolve into this herky-jerky responsiveness to what, whatever the felt need deserves. I've seen this on, as part of Christian ministries I've served. Someone loud or someone influential has a complaint. A member of the board sees himself as the representative of that loud person or influential person. And the board member sees it as his job to throw that person a bone and formulate some compromise for the sake of peace, for the sake of his constituent. If the constituency model of leadership gains the day with us, Leadership has lost the battle, and perhaps the war. Now, there are things I can say at this point about listening to those who are aggrieved, trying to sympathetically put yourself in their shoes, and trying to reason with them. Yes, we should do those things. We should do those things not because we're reflexively responding to felt needs, but because we want to make good decisions. And this will help us make good decisions, even if it's what the person will not want. And so if we have a constituency model, we will turn into something that people that study government call agency capture. It's Exxon capturing the EPA and making the EPA through its finesse and manipulation lobbying come up with rules that it likes, that Exxon likes. Utilities do this with the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission. Local governments do this with the Department of Local Government Finance, with legislators and lobbyists trying to get what, what they want from the people that are supposed to be regulating them, governing them. So I had, I had a board situation on one of these ministries, and I got counsel. This was a few weeks ago. My counselor told me that what the board I was serving on needed was long, slow obedience in the same direction. That means leadership. Leadership doesn't mean agreement on everything, but it does mean agreement on the big things. In that kind of leadership that does say no, as well as yes, actually inspires confidence in the people that we're supposed to care for. And no matter what decision is made, it contributes to the health and peace of the world. Long, slow obedience in the same direction, not perky, jerky responsiveness to felt needs and representing this constituency group and that stakeholder over there and that rich person and that not life. If we operate on the constituency model, we end up with every man doing what is right in his own eyes. Leadership becomes the instruments, the chess pieces that the people are moving around and pitting against one another. And you get blown about by every wind of preference. That isn't fighting sin. That's juggling sin around to lower the decibel level. James 1, 14 through 16. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my so is this the condition of the church that we'll answer for? We'll answer to God. That we didn't fight sin in ourselves, in our families, in our churches. And so people die spiritual deaths. May it not be. Let us consider, as, as we read in the beginning, what the Apostle Paul says, trusting God to give us courage to fight and to give us understanding of everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to love your church and the sheep. To seek their peace and their purity. Please give us courage and please give us self-forgetfulness. We pray this in Jesus' name.
thank you for downloading this podcast of New Geneva Academy. The purpose of this podcast is to shine a light on the pastoral ministry. We believe Reformation will come to the church when pastors are faithful to their local flock in the power of the Holy Spirit. If you believe God is calling you into the pastoral ministry, please get in touch with us by visiting our website at newgenevaacademy.com.